All right. Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Morning to you. Hey, you know, the culture around us is changing, and it's changing fast, right? Maybe even exponentially fast. And I think the quintessential question for the Christian in America is going to be, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to interact with the culture as Christians? And to help us better think about that really important topic, one of the things that we're going to do this summer as a church is we're going to press pause on our series through the book of Luke, which we've been going kind of on and off again through for the last three years now. And this summer, we're going to do a summer teaching series on the life of Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Now, Elijah is a guy who's speaking to a culture that's not just walking away from God. In his day, the culture was like running away from God. And yet, one of the really interesting things about Elijah is that he speaks into the culture, and yet he has his own sort of emotional and mental struggles as he goes through that as well. So I just think there's a ton that we personally can learn this summer. Whether you know a lot about Elijah or you've never even heard of Elijah before, I pray this is just a helpful summer series to you. Now, before we just jump right into the Old Testament part of the Bible, I think what we need to do first as we sort of kick off this series this morning is we got to get some context. Like, where are we in history? Uh, where are we even in biblical history? And so we're going to go uh, get in your time machine. Uh, we're going back in time about a thousand years before Jesus. We'll start there and I'll kind of work you up to where we are in Elijah's time. So if you go about a thousand years before Jesus... Israel has become a nation. They have a king. Their first king was named King Saul. About 1,000 BC, the greatest king of Israel's history, King David, which makes sense given his name, uh, was, uh, I'm David, uh, sorry, well, that's what you're supposed to, no, I was, if I had a third service, I wouldn't use that joke, but now it's over, right? Okay, uh, <laughs> King David is this incredible king for Israel. That's about 1,000 years before Jesus. Israel is all united as one country. Uh, David has a son, Solomon, who takes over for him. But after Solomon, the nation of Israel divides in two. In fact, I will show you a map. Check this out. So here we go. The kingdom of Israel was actually the kingdom that breaks away, which is kind of confusing, is the blue kingdom on top. That's a new nation. And then there's the kingdom of Judah. You'll see Jerusalem's kind of at the top of that yellow. I'm sure that's not yellow. It's like a golden. Someone's going to correct me later. But you have Judah and Israel now in two. Now, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, Judah kind of has a mixed bag of good and bad kings. But Israel can't find a good king to save their life. And in 874 BC, so it's about 874 years before Jesus, they've already moved on to their seventh king. There's assassinations, all this sort of stuff. Read about it in the book of First Kings if you want. And they get to their seventh king, and their seventh king is a guy by the name of Ahab. Now, we're going to hear a lot about Ahab this summer, and I want to give you some context on Ahab before we just walk into Elijah, because you've got to know a little bit about him if this is going to make sense as we progress through the summer. So everybody grab a Bible. We're going to learn about Ahab. So the Bible's right in front of you on the chair in front of you. You can easily grab it now. You don't have to like awkwardly march forward or anything. Grab a Bible, or if you brought one with you, that's great. Uh, you can use the Renovation Church a Bible app, type uh, Bible in weekly verses. Whatever you have, let's get people looking at the word here. So we're going to be on page 243, and we're going to start learning about Ahab. Now, King Ahab is a bad dude, and Ahab makes a terrible choice, and he marries someone that he shouldn't, this woman by the name of Jezebel. I always tell my kids that the most important decision that they will ever make in life is a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And the second most important decision that you will ever make in your life 
is who will you marry? And Ahab misses that one. And he marries this woman named Jezebel who does all sorts of awful things that we're going to see this summer. Now, before we get to Elijah, who kind of bursts on the scene in chapter 17, we're going to read a little bit about King Ahab. Now, Ahab was a king of that northern kingdom, that blue kingdom that we saw on the map. So we're in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. So look for that big number 16. And we're going to start right at verse 29. So then find the little number 29. Okay, here's what it says. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so that's who was king at the time in the southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Amri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Amri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and we'll, we'll kind of explain who he is a little bit more in a second, but Jeroboam was the first king of Israel when they broke away to become that northern kingdom. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal. Now, Baal is a, is a false god, an idol. Began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Uh, Asherah was a false goddess that he was worshiping. And did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. All right, so in summary, this is bad, right? This is really, really bad. Long gone are the days of King David where there's spiritual revival and people just are on fire for God and they're following him. In fact, that period doesn't last all that long. About uh, 60 years before this, so we're in 874 BC, 60 years before this is when the nation of Israel actually split in half like we saw on the map. And their first king was that guy we just read about, uh, King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam begins to get the people to sin. And it's kind of interesting. He sets up two golden calves, one in one city and one in another city. And because he doesn't want the people to go down to Jerusalem, because that's in Judah, the other kingdom now, to pray at the temple or offer sacrifices there. So he sets up these two golden calves up in Israel. And he says, people of Israel, the, this is God. This is God who brought you out of Egypt. Come and pray here. Now, it's kind of nuanced here, but he's actually technically trying to say it's the same God. He's just saying this cow, I guess, is a physical representation of that God. Well, God has explicitly told them, right, as in the Ten Commandments, don't make an image to pray to. So they're starting this journey of sin. And sin is always a slippery slope. Every time you start sinning, it is a slippery slope downhill. Even if you think you're doing nothing, it's probably sliding down the hill. And so the people of Israel, they start with the golden cow, and they just continue to slide and slide. And now, about 60 years later, they're actually worshiping other gods. And it's going to get even worse because sin gets messy. And Jezebel comes in because the culture is just ripe for somebody like that. And she actually starts to slaughter the priests and the prophets of the one true God. And it's here, at what feels like the very bottom of the slippery slope, that God begins to turn the tide. And he starts to turn things around through the efforts of one person. One. Elijah. And I just find this interesting, because you read through the whole Bible, and you see this trend fairly often. That God works revival through one person and starts with one. 
right? And you, you see that sometimes even today, right? There's a, sometimes whole families are turned around when just one person comes to Christ, and then the spouse comes to Christ, and the kids come to Christ, and then grandma and grandpa start coming to Christ. You see that sometimes a, a person begins to pray, and God begins to move in their life, and a whole neighborhood is turned around, or a workplace environment, or a school, to one person. And that one person may be you and your family, at your work, in your neighborhood. And so I just want you to pay close attention as we study this person of Elijah this summer. Okay, so let's take a look. Now we're going to read the very first passage about Elijah in the Bible. So if you still have your Bible open, now just look to where the big 17 is. That means we're starting chapter 17, and we're going to be all right at verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, so he's going to go confront the king. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, that's the Jordan River. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Okay, so this is the first story we have about Elijah. Elijah comes on the scene, he confronts the evil king Ahab by announcing, there's going to be no rain for a few years, not even due. And now, this is fascinating, I actually think this is incredibly fascinating, is here's King Ahab. He's been praying to this false god named Baal. Now, in the ancient Near East, there's actually a lot of false gods named Baal, but this particular version, the Canaanite version of Baal, he had a specific purpose. Do you remember learning about this in school back in the day when you learned about like the ancient gods and goddesses of Greek and Rome? You, know, you learn about Zeus and those guys, and they all had like a specific function that they did. Well, it's the same thing here. Baal had a specific function, and he was known as the storm god and the bringer of rain. That was his job. Do you see the irony here? So the people of Israel have prostituted themselves to another god. One that supposedly is going to bring them lots of rain, which is going to give them lots of great crops, which is going to make them rich, right? And this is interesting because God could have brought any judgment that he wanted to on the people of Israel. But through Elijah, he chooses this judgment of, I'm not going to let it rain for the next few years. To which I'm sure the people probably heard that, and they, they probably responded by going, no problem. No problem. Baal is going to make it rain. That's like what he does. He's going to make it rain. Well, you just have to stay tuned this summer to see what happens. <clears throat> or again, you could read ahead. Um, but what I really want to focus on most today, as we sort of begin this study of the life of Elijah, is how God takes this first major season of Elijah's life to prepare him for his mission, for his calling. And I think there's a lot we can learn here, because Elijah's culture, much like ours, is just walking away from God. And you're going to look at Elijah, and eventually, as we read through chapter and chapter, he's really going to engage the culture. We've actually been talking about this lately as a church. What is our role as a Christian in a changing culture? Our role is not to withdraw from the culture, okay? The Christian's job is not to go hide in the caves, 
as the culture around us changes. The Christian's job is not to overthrow the culture, right? Our aim is not to win it back and get power over. That's not our aim, biblically. Our aim is not to adapt with the culture, just to become like it and change our views and our ways. The aim of the Christian is to be an ambassador for Christ within the culture, an ambassador, a representative for Christ within the culture. It's to speak and to live out God's truth to a changing culture. But that is not an easy thing at all. And so before Elijah begins this sustained period of his life where he's speaking into the culture as an ambassador of God, God's going to put him through some ambassador training first. And that's what we see today. In fact, there are three things that I want you to see today about how God will train you to be an ambassador for Christ to a changing culture. So take a look at this. Here's the first one. Three ways God will train you to be an ambassador for Christ within a changing culture. Number one, this is interesting. You're not going to hear this in a lot of places, but this is exactly what the word is teaching. Before God can really use you, he must first break you. Okay, what does that mean? Look at verse 3 of our passage, if you still have it open. We're told that God sends Elijah to the brook in the Kareth Ravine. Now, uh, this book, First Kings, is written in Hebrew. Kareth is a Hebrew word, and it's a Hebrew word that means to cut off, to cut down, to cut away. And so before God can do this incredible work through Elijah the prophet, he had to do some cutting first. He had to do some humbling. And so he sends Elijah to the cutting ravine. Because it's hard to be humbled, right? When everything's going right and the crowd is cheering you on, but hidden in the ravine in complete isolation, God can do his work there. You know, the Lord uses this method a lot. In the scripture, you think of Moses, right? God wants to use Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And so to prepare Moses, he sends him to the desert for 40 years first. And then he's ready. You see this sort of training a lot in the saints of old. You know, I often think about my hero, uh, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, uh, whose bobblehead may or may not sit on my desk. Uh, It totally is. Uh, Spurgeon laid in bed sick for much of his life large portions of his life. And I remember reading his biography and just thinking, Lord, why, why would you do this? Like, I mean, this is probably the greatest teacher preacher in the last few hundred years. And so many Sundays, he was just sick in bed. I mean, there's so much more we could have learned from him. Why would you do that? To which Spurgeon himself, and I'm sure you got to ask this question a lot, once replied and he said this. Some of you maybe heard this before. He said, I would venture to say that the greatest blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. Sickness has frequently been of more use to the saints of God than health has. Why would he say that? Well, it's because before God can really use you, he must first break you, break you of your pride and your self-reliance. You know, sometimes we call this the wilderness. The scriptures use this term a lot, the wilderness. They use it both metaphorically and sometimes literally. People experience the literal wilderness in the Bible. And the wilderness is always a time of testing and a time of trial. You think about the wilderness. What about Elijah? After six months in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, Elijah's not walking around by himself going, 
Am I the best or what? <laughs> I am awesome. You don't do that in the wilderness. What is God doing? God is pruning his pride for a purpose. Uh, there's a pastor by the name of Ryan Paulson who uh, says this about the wilderness, the hard times of your life. And I, I read this uh, this week, and I just thought this was really helpful. I'll put his whole quote on the screen for you. He says, the wilderness, the hard times of your life, they often feel like wasted time. I feel that way, right? You're sick, you're in a trial. Like, why is this even happening right now, God? Like, what, is, what good is coming out of this? But it's really training ground. The wilderness is where we come face to face, our will and God's will. It's where God's will wins out because our resources are so depleted. Our willpower, our our gifting, our ingenuity, there's no way those things get us through the wilderness. In the wilderness, we must face our weaknesses and surrender our illusions and our pretenses. We surrender our way through the wilderness. We don't beat our chest through it. Many of you have experienced this in your life as you face things like cancer. Some of you have been infertility, unemployment, or loss, other excruciating trials. You don't beat your chest in pride when you've got to deal with those sort of things. In the wilderness, God just strips you of your pride. And in turn, in the wilderness, you learn what you could never learn on the mountaintop. And that's dependence on God. You know what I'm saying? You learn dependence on God in the wilderness. And that leads us really to what becomes the second stage of ambassador training. And that is this. Number two, the Lord will teach you dependence. As he begins to cut away your pride, he then next begins to teach you dependence. So God sends Elijah to this sort of hidden ravine. He's, first and foremost, he's protecting him, right? And then he's shaping him. But he's also teaching him to absolutely depend on himself, on God. It's kind of amazing what happens, right? So look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I mean, God is teaching Elijah to depend on him daily. So what does he bring him? Does he bring him a three-month supply of food? No. It's daily. In fact, it's twice a day. Now, first, you, you hear that, and you're probably thinking, like, ravens? Like, really? This is some sort of joke? But this is real, right? This is raven DoorDash to the brook. It just comes. It's pretty amazing. And I'm, I'm sure Elijah was pretty amazed by it the first two times, right? But then there's probably this, this temptation to go, like, are you... Are you actually going to keep doing this, Lord? Every day, twice a day. And yet every day, God provides. You know, God did the same sort of daily reliance when the Israelites themselves, when they left Egypt, when they were in the wilderness. What did he do? He provided manna from heaven. And again, he doesn't give them a two-week supply. It's just every day. They've got to rely on it. Not a week supply, not a month supply, just every day. You know, that's why we see in the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, right? What, what, what do we pray? We pray, give us this day our daily bread, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Where, where, where are my Lutherans and Catholics at? You know what I'm talking about, right? Amen? You guys don't say amen. Stop. You know that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was too mean. Okay, for some of you, you're just in this particular stage of ambassador training right now. 
right? Dependence training. For you, life has just been hard lately. For some of you, life has just been lean lately. And honestly, you're unsure what tomorrow is even going to look like. And so what you're learning is you're learning to just trust God for today. And I, I just want to say to you, that is a hard place to be, but that is a good place to be. To learn to trust God for today. You know, I think that it actually should be a scary thing for the Christian when we believe in ourselves and our plans so deeply. You're looking out at tomorrow and the next month, and you're feeling great, right? In fact, you're feeling so great about all your plans and your ideas, it's even led you into what I would call a season of prayerlessness. Anybody in there right now? For like, it's been a while since you've just had this daily rhythm of prayer. Prayerlessness should always be a scary indicator to the Christian. If you're in this season where you're just not praying a lot, that ought to scare you a little bit because what it's saying is you're relying, you're depending on yourself. You're not feeling the need for daily dependence on God. And I would say to you, if that's where you are right now, you might want to get ready for God to take some things away in your life. Because he wants to train you as an ambassador to this culture. And he'll train you however he needs to train you. And for some of you, if you're in this stage of prayerlessness, get on your knees tomorrow. Because I think for a lot of us, God, what he'll do instead is he will take us right back to stage number one of ambassador training. And he'll do the cutting away and the cutting away of our pride and our self-reliance. So we get back to first relying on him. And then he starts walking us through, again, daily dependence where we learn that he is good and that he provides and everything. He is Jaira. You know that song they play on the radio, right? It just means provider. And that he can provide in all things, in everything. All right, let's take a look at the third stage here of ambassador training that we learn about from Elijah. The third stage is this. The Lord will teach you obedience. I actually think sometimes we take this uh, aspect of this passage in 1 Kings 17 for granted when we read it. I mean, okay, think, just critically think about this. Like, you've never heard this story before. If it were you, and you were told, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to flee to this brook far away. And while you're there, I will miraculously give you water out of the brook that's somehow going to stay there, even though we're going to be in an insane drought. And don't worry about food, because twice a day, I'm going to bring you bread and meat from the ravens. Would you go? Would you believe it? I want you to seriously ask yourself that question. I think for a lot of us, we're like, I ain't going there. Because, like, ravens don't do that. Right? But what does it say about Elijah? I love the simplicity of the beginning of verse 5. Did you see this? Look at it. It just says this. So he did what the Lord had told him. Could this be said of you, my Christian friend? So she did what the Lord told her to do. Is that you? Are there things on your heart that God's been just prompting you to do lately? Are you doing what the Lord told you to do? Even if you're like, that's crazy. Because some of you in here right now, God is telling you some crazy things. And you're going, God, you can't do that. You don't think Elijah was going, seriously, ravens? You know, ravens were actually unclean to the Jew. He's probably going, I don't, I, what, what? And some of you right now in your head, you're going, God, what? But can this be said of you? So he did what the Lord had told him. 
And that's one of the main marks of a mature follower of Christ. They do what the Lord tells them to do. I actually think one of the harder parts of obedience for Elijah was probably to stay at the brook. Hard to obey to go, and maybe even harder for him to stay. One of the things you will see about Elijah as we study him this summer is this dude is tough. He is bold. He is brave. He is courageous. That's who he is. And I'm sure that he was sitting at the brook day after day going, come on, God, let's get out of here. Like now is the time. So imagine it's six months in or nine months in. It hasn't rained a single day. This brave, bold Elijah is probably going, God, seriously, get me out of here. Why am I here? I should be confronting Ahab. I should be preaching to the people right now. Surely they're losing their faith in this Baal, the bringer of rain. Now is the time to get out and go, Lord. Come on. Why do I have to be hiding out here with the ravens when I could be doing your work? And yet the Lord was doing his work right there at the brook. Teaching Elijah, making absolutely sure that he knew what it meant to trust and obey. To trust and obey in the Lord's timing, which is always perfect. You know, often the, one of the best places that you as a Christian will learn to obey the Lord is in what we sometimes call the waiting you know what I'm talking about? Like, you want to do something. You may be ready to move forward in a, in a relationship or get a new job or move, and you just feel like you're waiting, and for some reason the Lord's just saying, pause, not yet. You call it the waiting. And sometimes it's hard to obey in the waiting. Elijah's just waiting at the brook. But I want you to realize that God may just be training you He may just be preparing you, teaching you to better obey him now in the waiting so that when you get to this next season of your life, you can really listen and you can really walk out in his will. In fact, look at these three things again. I'm going to put the three things from ambassador training on the screen. These three things that Elijah is going to learn while he's out in the brook being fed by ravens, they are going to pay massive spiritual dividends when it's time for God to use him to actually come into this public ministry and speak as an ambassador on behalf of him. When we study Elijah this summer, you are going to see his trust in God. You're going to see his faith, his humility. You're going to see crazy levels of obedience. God is going to ask him to go in and do some unbelievably kind of scary things where most of us would go like, oh, that's great, God. No, thank you, right? But Elijah, he just obeys. How can he obey? Because he learned obedience in the wilderness and in the waiting. God is preparing him. And so one of the things that I, my heart is for you, especially for some of you that are in the wilderness right now, or those of you that will be it again in a different season, that you begin biblically to just see your experience in the wilderness as something different. God is always using the wilderness for a purpose. And he is using it now. He is shaping you to be a stronger ambassador for him. Because the culture around us, they need Jesus. And they need him now. But they will not hear from us 
if we just sort of continue on this trend in America as consumeristic Christians. And it will not hear it from us if we continue on this trend that I'm seeing in our culture where we sort of believe that God is only moving when he brings us to the mountaintop. But if we realize that God is training us in the wilderness and he is training us to be humble, dependent, obedient, then God's going to do crazy amazing things through your life. You know, as, as we're talking about God moving through some of the hard times in life, there may be a few of you in here where you're just in a hard time right now, and maybe for you what's happening is you're just waking up to the reality that you just need God in the first place. That life just isn't working right now, and you need him. You need God in your life. And I just want to tell you, if no one's ever told you before, God wants to be in your life. He's seen all your mess-ups, all of them, all of your sin, and still he loves you so much. The main teaching of Christianity is he sent his son Jesus for you. He sends Jesus to earth. Jesus teaches us how to live. He shows us how to love. But most importantly, Jesus Christ dies in our place on the cross. And what he's doing is he's dying for your sins. That was just incredible, right, if you really think about it. He's dying for your sins. And the Bible teaches that if you would believe in him, you would say, I believe that you died in my place for my sins. Then you can be, we call us, you, would, you can be saved. Well, saved from what? Saved from the consequence of your sin, which is separation from God. It's eternity in hell, paying for our sins. Jesus came to die in your place. And if you would say, God, I believe that you did that. In fact, I want to surrender my life over to you. I want you to be the leader of my life. Then God will wipe away everything you've ever done and you can be forgiven. It's pretty amazing. I think a lot of people in this country feel like, no, actually, I gotta get my life together, and then I can bring God back in. Once I start coming to church more, and I start, I stop doing this, and I stop doing that, then maybe God will accept me. He's saying, no, 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 I will come into your life right now, and I'll forgive everything you've ever done. Just make me the leader of your life. Believe that I died in your place. I love you that much. He wants to have a relationship with you so you can know him. It's this simple. I'll show it to you right out of the Bible. This is Romans chapter 10, verse 9 from the New Testament. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He's the leader of your life. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. In fact, I want to give you an opportunity to even do that this morning. We do this uh, every week. For some of you, maybe it's your first time here. Maybe a friend brought you here, a family member, and you're just going, I need this. Some of you, you've maybe been coming for two months, and you've been thinking about doing this, and you just need to surrender today and let him save you. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. In fact, just for a minute, would you just, just have everybody in the room just close their eyes and just bow your head just for a minute. Believers, I would just ask that you pray. If you're here, and you've never done this before, and you want God to come into your life. You want to surrender your life to him. Believing that he loves you so much and sent his son Jesus for you. You want to be forgiven today. I urge you to respond. Don't put it off. Believe now that he can forgive you and he will. And so what I want you to do is I want you to respond. In just a second, I'm actually going to ask you to stand up wherever you are as a way to respond. Everyone's eyes are closed, so no one's looking at you. But that's a way for you to sort of mark today. Say, yep. God, that's me. I'm right here. I'm believing and I'm accepting. If that's you, would you just stand right now? Amen. Thank you. If that's you, you can go ahead and just stand wherever you're at and accept that gift in of forgiveness. 
If you're kind of on the fence in this, I just urge you to accept that free gift from Jesus. Amen. Anyone else want to join those who are standing? I'll give you about 10 more seconds. Best decision you'll ever make in your life to let God lead your life. Anyone else? All right, for those of you that are standing, we want to pray with you. We just read that scripture that says, you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. So we're going to pray. We're all going to pray with you so you don't have to pray by yourself. Whether you're just believing for the first time or you've believed for most of your life, I want you to just repeat this prayer after me to just tell God what's on your heart. Dear God, I confess to you that I have sinned against you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. And God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. Uh, as everybody still has their eyes closed, for the, the few of you that are standing up, uh, I, just, uh, I, I just want you to know you just made the most important decision of your entire life and the best decision of your entire life. And so what I want to do is I want to get you just a few resources. So how do you do this? How do you actually start living this out and not just make this a moment? And so while we move into kind of our last song here, I'm going to pray. And when I pray, what I'm going to ask of you is just to sneak out of your row and head back into the lobby. And I will meet you out there with our, our, some of our follow-up folks. And we will give you some really, really important resources to get started on this. Uh, if you're from this church and your friend or family member is standing up, would you uh, go out there with them as well? So you guys can kind of head out there. I'll meet you in a second so you can head out as I pray. And then, uh, and then we'll have a final song of worship for those of you in here. All right, let me pray. God, we thank you uh, so much that you love us and that you train us and that you use the wilderness, God, that you use the wilderness in our, our own lives, God. And I thank you for those who have just experienced brand new life right now in this moment, in this room, that we get to be a part of that. And we just praise you for that, that you are our provider. We love you so much. It's your amazing name we pray. Amen.